so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a podcast focused on ethics, theology, and philosophy in a technological society. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news and top resources. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. In this episode, I'm joined by Patricia Shaw, who's an AI ethics, strategy, policy, and governance consultant, and also serves as the CEO of Beyond Reach Consulting Limited, based in the United Kingdom. We talk about AI ethics, digital privacy, and online governance. Trish has over 20 years experience as a soliciting advisor on data, technology, financial services, regulatory, and government affairs. As a writer and public speaker, Trish is an expert advisor on numerous governance issues and guidelines in the European Union. She's also the chair of the United Kingdom Society for Computers and Law on the board of iTech Law, as well as the vice chairman of iTech Law's AI Committee. She's also on the steering committee of Women Leading in AI and has recently been listed as one of the top brilliant women in AI ethics. She's particularly concerned about the role of AI in automated decision-making and how it can have an effect on individuals, people groups, society, and the planet. As a Christian, she's passionate about raising awareness on AI and being an advocate of responsible AI, AI governance, and AI ethics, specifically in policy regulation, mainly in and through the Homo Responsibilis Initiative. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Trish, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech today. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what motivated you to step into these ethical issues surrounding AI and technology more broadly? Well, I've been a technology lawyer and been involved at the forefront of emerging tech as a legal advisor since the late 1990s. Uh, I qualified from university in 99 qualified from law school in 2001 uh, as a legal advisor in 2003. So we're going back a little way. So I've had a long-standing intrigue with technology and its impact on people, really. Um, But for me, the kind of ethics journey, I suppose, started back in 2016 when I was working for a global data company as um, their in-house counsel or part of their in-house counsel team. And um, I was tasked, actually, with designing some ethical questions for our advanced analytics product teams. And the intention was our designers and developers were going to consider this in the course of their work. And that actually sent me on quite an interesting journey of discovery uh, and made me really understand and realise the importance of having human intervention and a holistic approach, not just to the ethics of the process, but also the governance um, of, of the processes themselves and the technology to ensure ethical outcomes. 
And what was really interesting, I suppose, was then in the UK, we had this um, political um, wave that meant that we had a new centre for data ethics and innovation and a new office of AI with plans for an AI council being founded at the end of 2018, essentially. So that was my time. That was my place. uh, And that's when I um, moved out of a traditional legal in-house role to set up Beyond Reach, which is what I'm doing now and to be able to focus on something I'm truly passionate about. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate a lot of the work that you've done. Obviously, you have a vast um, experience in this area coming from the law background and the governments and then stepping into a lot of the ethical issues. You said very similar here in the United States. We kind of had a push uh, for AI ethics. It's a very popular topic, especially in artificial intelligence and ethical um, and philosophical grounds of pursuing how do we not only develop, as you said, these tools, but then also how do we use them? And then how do we govern their use in our society? Because they are so powerful. I know you've written a lot on AI ethics and the need for them. So I guess for a listener's sake that who may not be super familiar with artificial intelligence and how we're using it each day, how is AI being used more broadly in our society? And what are maybe a couple, one or two of the big ethical questions or big ethical debates that our societies are having, whether it's here in the United States or in Europe, around AI and its use? So I think for for most of us, we will have seen some of the discussion around social media and um, the need for algorithmic transparency, the need for algorithmic accountability and um, a a greater understanding of fairness. What does fairness look like and and why um, certain content is moderated, pushed, driven in a particular direction or how we're recommended certain ad tech or uh, films or content that we then go on to to review and consume. And that ultimately has an impact on our behaviours. But this this idea of uh, fairness, accountability and transparency, this FAT acronym, people will often see across the board. And and these aren't wrong by any stretch. Uh, Indeed, I think um, these are fairly lofty words and can mean different things to different people. Different disciplines have different understandings of them. And different jurisdictions, cultures around the world also understand them and and apply them differently. And so coming then back down to earth again, really, as to what it means um, for AI ethics for me as a Christian and um, the important factors in our society right now, it has to boil down to what does it mean to be human and what kind of society do we want to create And um, once we understand the answer to those two questions, this should really direct our ethical answers and also help us to understand what it is, what AI we should actually be designing, developing and let loose on the market. Um, Some of the key issues are the impacts on our human autonomy and our agency, both of those who are impacted by the AI, but also those who are involved in influencing it. So the employees of some very large organisations, some small uh, startup organisations. So what's the impact there, really, particularly around decision making? Um, I also see its, its impact on our cognitive ability to think critically and have real true freedom of thought, freedom of choice and, and freedom, freedom potentially of conscience. And I, I know um, there are a number of secular speakers in this space, um, Tristan Harris being one of them who talks about brain hacking. Uh, and I think that that's a very real and important ethical concern in this place. Um, you know, one of my hobby horses, uh, it, it, Jason, is bias and um, whether that be existing biases. So this is potential for discrimination, embedded systemic, historic discrimination, unfair outcomes in our society. 
um, whether we preserve that, that kind of existing bias or whether we look for a transformative bias model that is set to try and change our societal norms to be the preferred societal norms in an ev- effort to kind of de-bias or cure existing systemic problems, but in the process of doing that, creating potential new ones in its wake. So uh, uh, those are some of the kind of more loftier pieces. But I think other aspects that are concerning me right now are is the power AI wields and can wield over decision makers and decisions made, which ultimately can have the potential to divide societies, as we've certainly seen, both on, on the state side and, and in the UK and in Europe, in fact, because of, uh, of the potential uh, power of content being driven in a certain way. So dividing societies, discrimination and digitally exclusion. And I think we might even touch upon COVID in a little bit. But with regard to digital exclusion, I think we've seen that prol- come prolifically forward here in the last certainly 12 to 18 months. Um, trust and misplaced trust is another point. And um, fundamentally, the, dis- the disproportionate and unintended effects that people haven't planned or, or accounted for in their planning of design choices. Seemingly innocuous design choices at each and every stage of the AI lifecycle can actually lead to these disproportionate outcomes that no one ever planned for. So, yeah, those are, those are some of those things that keep me up at night at the moment. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons that I really appreciate your voice in a lot of these conversations because they are extremely complex. And as you said earlier, one area I want to dig in a little bit on is kind of the the ways that certain words like fairness or trust or transparency or even getting down to the level of actual governance and regulation is different among different cultures. So here in the United States, where most of our listeners are from, we have a very distinct approach to online regulation and regulation of the technology industry. We're starting to see this in Florida with the social media censorship bill and other types of um, bills that are coming out or even AI ethics boards that are being created and a lot of the controversy surrounding the best way to approach regulation and governance. But then you compare that to the UK or even broadly uh, to the European Union, and there's very different approaches uh, over overseas on the best way to approach these things. Can you kind of highlight maybe a little of some or a few of those differences between maybe a more US-based approach or UK approach or that of kind of a broader European approach? What are maybe some of the key highlights or key distinctions uh, between these varying approaches and where do each of these approaches get things right? in your opinion? Oh, do they get them right? <laughs> I think the, the issue, the, the question has to boil down to, to regulate or not to regulate, is that the question? And that, that, that comes to a matter for the, the different cultures we've mentioned across uh, the US, to Canada, to South America, to the UK, to Europe, beyond Europe. And um, that can boil down to a matter of economics, actually. Um, our views on how important economics is and how uh, capitalist-driven uh, a society is. So I think that there's a, a matter of that. I think, as I mentioned, culture, but I think also um, hi- history, um, particularly here and the European Union side of things and across Europe, it's history and attitudes to privacy and more pertinently data privacy. And I think we can see that here in Europe embedded in the fundamental, um, the Convention on Human Rights from the European Union, um, and in contrast to the UN Convention on Human Rights, which doesn't cover data privacy. So we've got like a bit of a divergence there. So there's certainly definitely differences there. Um, There are some very common themes shared, and um, I'm sure you've read this paper yourself, Jason, but 
we will have seen many highlighted in a few academics works, but the most notable one is the Bertman Klein Centres um, from Harvard paper on the principled approach to AI, which did map kind of some of the global principles and, and looked at, to see where there was synergy across the globe in, in categorising some of these themes around AI, ethics and the likes. And, and they are some of the pieces that we've touched upon now. So it, it's not for, for lack of common themes or abilities there for us to perhaps find some consensus. I think it's uh, the, the downfall at the moment seems to be in the need for a common language and a common approach to how we come about with that consensus to produce um, outcomes that are relevant, appropriate and proportionate to the ethics of the audience, the ethics of what's known as the application domain of the AI. And I think that's where, where there's problems because certainly this side of the pond where I'm finding my own work, businesses, organisations need the regulatory impetus. We're quite well regulated in certain sectors that are deploying AI early doors, you know, like financial services, healthcare, health tech. Um, there are other less regulated spaces like edutech. Um, government services have a public legitimacy mandate. They need to legitimise their actions. They need to exercise their social licence to operate as a government and they need to be increasingly more transparent. So these things are all at their heart and at their mind. Yes, there are some existing laws that can and may apply, but to the nub of it, that there's lack of a regulatory impetus to, to cause the actions necessary to ensure that governments and, and organisations put the appropriate regulatory framework, uh, the AI frameworks in place, the AI ethics frameworks in place, and indeed then put the governance that has that holistic uh, and life cycle approach to oversight uh, and therefore has the uh, element of accountability to it. I appreciate these are really big words and big thoughts and big meanings, but I just think that that's where I'm seeing the divergence in, in approach right now, that certainly this side of the pond, people are crying out for, you give us the regulation, we'll put the budget to it. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is understanding a different perspective. You're a believer serving in a different country in a different context. And often a lot of these questions um, especially for those here in the United States, we might think of there's maybe a couple positions on this. And a lot of these are more American approaches, but understanding kind of the global impact of artificial intelligence, the global impact of ethics and uh, technology and how these things are shaping and forming us, not only as people, but also our society, as you said earlier, I think is really helpful for listeners sake. We'll make sure to highlight the paper that Trish just mentioned from Harvard um, in the show notes. So you can grab a copy of that and kind of dig into some of those kind of common principles that we share with our brothers and sisters across the globe. But one of the things, Trish, I wanted to dig in a little bit is something you said earlier about, as Christians, the way that we approach the topic of artificial intelligence and technology and ethics. And as a Christian stepping into this space, one of the things I really appreciate that you mentioned is not only who we are as human, but also what kind of society are we wanting? So as a, as a believer in this space— how do you kind of go about how the bridge between your faith and these works of ethics and technology and artificial intelligence, what, is, what are some of the commonalities and how does your faith help to drive those conversations as you seek a better society? I, I come across quite a lot of commonality with the themes that we're, we're seeing in AI ethics. I think the challenges I find is that sometimes the, the reasoning that sits behind those those topics, those outcomes, the desire to, to push for 
um, greater accountability doesn't necessarily stem from the same root. And I, I suppose to that end, that that's where I feel being a Christian in this space, having a, a voice um, in this arena and being able to lead in this space from a position of belief, a position, a Bible-based belief system um, that gives me a perspective on how these big issues in technology can, perhaps should, be applied. And also perhaps that just stepping back and zooming out and having a bit more of a bigger picture approach to really thinking about, well, I can see this being really useful. And let's just take an example of this. So augmented AI, so augmented um, humans and, and AI, so can really totally see the benefit of human beings potentially being um, enhanced. You know, if someone has a cochlear implant and who couldn't hear before and they have a, an AI cochlear implant put in, then how life transforming is that for somebody? Absolutely. Somebody who has Parkinson's disease and who has a neural brain interface that helps them to control the, the nervous system and the, the reaction that they have without that. I've actually seen a live example where someone couldn't physically put the, the adapter, the, the neural brain interface back on because their Parkinson's was so bad. So this is life transforming AI. Now, not all AI is life transforming in such a positive way. But I think we also have to step back and then ask ourselves you know, what does this then say to us as a society about disability? What does this mean about how we are in our normal, what does, what does normal look like? What, what is the bar that we're trying to achieve um, as humans? And who's going to be able to afford it? You know, will people be excluded who can't afford it and perhaps most need the medical interventions as they will be at that time? And then how far is too far? You know, how, when, when you augment a human being, are we permitting people to then advance, be enhanced, evolve? You know, I've heard all these languages, uh, all these phrases, all the, the, this terminology. And so I, I bring it to something very humanoid. And I, I don't really want to put AI in that bracket because AI is so much more than anthropomorphic or, or, or humanoid robotics. Or, or anything that might adapt and augment a human being. But suffice it to say, this, this puts real flesh on the bones for people to understand, you know, some of the key issues of our time that are, we're going to face. And without asking those bigger questions, and as a Christian, we understand that every person is unique, uni uniquely made, uniquely created in the image of God. And so this is, this is really challenging then to say, well, is disability now no longer acceptable? And I think that, that that's frightening because we have brothers and sisters across the globe and we all have elements in our life that are not are far from perfect. So what, what is this then saying as a society? Are we then going to be striving for some kind of perfection? And I think that that's incredibly concerning. Um, so I think being a Christian in this space and helping people to become more aware of the societal impacts and some of the bigger issues, uh, bigger picture issues that this is going to demand of us and require of us to stand up for is more important than ever. Yeah, I think you're exactly right on that. And a lot of the questions that you were getting at is we can easily see 
how good this type of technology can be for our society and how good it can be for our brothers and sisters in Christ and also those who live in our society who are suffering, as you said, from various uh, effects of the fall in many ways of disabilities or medical conditions and being able to have that restorative use of technology. And I think for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to link to a couple of podcasts that we've done on the concept of transhumanism, which seems like a really big word and a complicated subject, but the idea of transcending our humanity and kind of gets to that question of, well, what standard are we wanting to have for human beings? What is normal in that sense? And so you get into a lot of these questions about the idea of the restorative uses of technology versus this idea of transcending the limitations of our humanity and a lot of the debates on that. So we'll make sure to link to a podcast uh, that we did with Dr. Jacob Schatzer a few few months ago talking about transhumanism and the image of God. But Trish, I wanted to dig in a little bit on that idea of the Imago Dei or the image of God that you were talking about, because I think that's a key concept uh, for Christians when we approach not only just ethics in general, but specifically with technology and artificial intelligence. From your perspective, why is the Imago Dei or the image of God so central to a lot of these technological and ethical questions, especially around issues that you've written on of trust and transparency and even digital privacy. Why is the image of God so key in those concepts as a Christian entering into this space? For me, it has to come down to identity and the role of God and the role of the human in relation to God. And that we we should never be looking to create something that should replace God. Um, I think fundamentally that that that's where I stand. But in in terms of issues like trust and transparency, well, we as human beings have this incredible desire to be known and to fully know. Um, it got us into the full situation after all, and I think um, we are seeing this in society where where people are perhaps surrendering data, um, looking for further insight and inference about themselves, or for allowing that to be shared with others so that they can help them make augmented decision-making, but without necessarily thinking about the impacts of what that means, about how transparent they are as a person, what impact that has on their privacy, um, and the the role that then we are entrusting into technology of essentially a a role that is omnipresent, omniscient and omnipotent potentially, you know, and I think when I hear and I'm in conversations with people where I'm being told that we now no longer have to disclose data, certainly that of protected characteristics or what we call special category data on this side of the pond, um, because an AI can predict it with a high degree of Bayesian certainty, probabilistic certainty. So I think that gets quite frightening um, because without validating that information, without actually confirming with the individual, is this true? And so it comes back even to more further issues of truth and perhaps truth decay. (laughs) Um, And whose truth is it? Um, That we then find... um, we may come across issues of where, well, we can't validate the, the information, the insight, the inference that's being drawn from uh, uh, an ADM, uh, automated decision-making system. And this then has impacts on our life and perhaps closes doors that we, we had wanted to have open to us. And, and coming back to the, to the issue of kind of trust again, um, 
I, I think people are looking to have trust in that ultimately someone in the personhood of God. But actually, we've seen a lot in this last at least 12 to 18 months, if not longer now, a lot of distrust in bigger organisations around us, um, governments around us. And I think there is almost a a quasi-like religiosity that comes with AI as well, that people want to trust in AI as if it had its own personhood and its own rights, personhood in in its own right, but rather forgetting that really where we're putting our trust is in trusting the organisations to design, develop, deploy and maintain and monitor AI. These are people after all. And, you know, ultimately, as I said before, every, every AI system, behind every AI system, there are people. And where are we placing that trust? We're ultimately placing that trust in people um, who are the ones who've designed, developed, deployed the AI, not, not God. And so we've got to be conscious of misplaced trust. We've got to be conscious of ultimately being transparent about ourselves. And, you know, we hear the mantra of... Um, well, I've got nothing to hide. Why can't I hand over this data? Why can't I hand over this information about me to get greater insight and inference? But without really understanding the, this impact on the privacy. And I think I kind of drew upon it a little bit with this idea of brain hacking. And aside from the physical neural brain interfaces that can come about, but actually uh, uh, an AI system being able to predict and have inferences, uh, draw inferences about you with a high degree of certainty and provide a a greater level of assurance for an organisation that's trying to um, rely on that information. And it's saying something about your very private sphere, maybe even your thought processes, maybe even um, something that you you were using as inputs for your decision-making process. What impact does that then have on you? Um, Does that then cause us as humans to become lazy, actually? Does this cause that information to be used in information that we're then having access to and making our decision-making processes frictionless? But actually, the very thing that we need is friction um, because how are we going to grow, how, how are we going to stress test our character and become out more, um, of more worth than gold and proved through the refiner's fire unless we have friction, unless we have stress test moments in our lives? And how many of us can say hand on heart, you know, some of our worst times in life have been when we've suffered, but actually some of the best times we've, we've come out with is after that suffering, what we've learned and, and what we've, we've um, heard and, and understood through that process. And you know, that's not an easy thing to say, but it, give, it shows us that there's a place, not necessarily for suffering and pain per se, but friction and having that uncomfortableness in our lives. And I think the risk is that we, certainly as Christians, but as a wider society, could become a bit too complacent and therefore stodgy and, and fat, essentially. <laughs> Not in the physical sense, but in, the, in the, the critical thinking sense. Yeah. And I think that's a really helpful way to approach it. And there's a lot of insight in there. Obviously, we could dig in there and just spend an entire podcast interview just talking about digital privacy and the various uh, kind of approaches and even the way that the Christian moral tradition speaks to digital privacy. That's where I've spent a lot of my time as of late. And what I'm ultimately doing a larger research project on is a Christian understanding of digital privacy from the scriptures. What does God speak to us and how does he help us to think through that with 
his word, because there are various approaches, as you said, about a more secular understanding of this idea of complete moral autonomy, and then a more Christian understanding of the individual, but also the individual under the reign and rule of God, but also in in the midst of a larger community. And it gets to a lot of these very existential kind of fundamental questions of Christian ethics and the Christian faith. And there's so much there to kind of unpack. But I do want to kind of shift the conversation a little bit to something you mentioned earlier, um, was about the COVID-19 pandemic. As many of us, uh, depending on where you live and where you're listening to this, some of us are starting to come out of the pandemic where vaccines are starting to roll out. Others, we're still still seeing a lot of sickness and a lot of death in various countries around the world. The COVID-19 pandemic is not over by any means, but we've made considerable progress in these areas. But one of the areas that I think is really interesting, especially with AI ethics and technology ethics, is the way that technology has been used and even abused um, in various areas and jurisdictions and governments and groups during this COVID-19 crisis. So, Trish, what are some of the ways that you've seen technology aid us in this fight against COVID? But what are some of the ways maybe that technology is being used to oppress uh, our fellow image bearers all across the world? Yeah. No, I think uh, I want to boil that down to two approaches. One has been, in terms of what's been good, has been perhaps some of the insight that may not have been either so swiftly or humanly possible in in some cases, uh, certainly about processing the data, really getting to understand some of the hotspots, really understanding, you know, how prolifically this this pandemic was um, transferring one person to another and across the globe. Um, I think that that has been powerful. Um, But then on the other side of that coin is this inclusion, or dare I say exclusion. And so just to kind of bring this down to a couple of things, uh, I suppose one, what I had seen on this journey uh, with a technical response to COVID-19 was first and foremost an element of tech solutionism. And we certainly saw that kind of what we call in the lockdown one here in the UK, the first lockdown, first wave, I suppose, where there was this raft of COVID tracker and tracer tools coming out with this incredibly imperfect technology. Now, granted, there's no AI in many of the COVID tracker and tracer tools. I did a paper with um, the Human Technology Foundation on you know, uh, technology governance in the time of crisis. We assessed, we looked at over 100 um, COVID track and tracer tools, but did a deep dive impact assessment on 20 across the globe of the COVID track and tracer tools. And I can hand on heart say none of them had AI in it. So um, it may well be that AI was being used in unpacking the data insight that was coming out of it. Don't get me wrong with that. And I, I do know that many governments, many um, health authorities were doing that. So in, in that lockdown one, we had these COVID track and tracer tools with this really imperfect technology, which, you know, just to give you a view on some of the, the issues that that might raise, well, if you downloaded this app and you were then going to, you were told to self-isolate, but it had got an alert that you'd been in contact with someone two metres from you over a 15-minute duration because these were some of the parameters set in the COVID track and tracer tools in your country, it didn't necessarily define that you were in a tenement block, block of high-rise flats. You had a thin concrete if not plasterboard wall between you and your neighbouring flat and you were one side in your bed sleeping overnight and the other neighbour was in their bed sleeping overnight. That was the lack of accuracy that these um, these tools were having with the, the Bluetooth um, uh, light energy te- technology, BLE technology. And so tech solutionism, when 
put this kind of rather, dare I say, clunky solution that only worked on certain types of smartphones with certain updated operating systems, which then brought to bear this digital exclusion. If you didn't have the smartphone, if you didn't have it at the right standard, you were excluded from even getting that app. And therefore, what did that mean? You couldn't access the services it was allowing you to, you couldn't be tracked and traced. That then brings us to the concept of track and trace. So in this time, even that concept of tracking and tracing, organisations didn't need the COVID track and trace tools. A lot of this um, information is available with mobile phone um, providers anyway. So arguably, anyone who was in an authority, like a government, who wanted to see that information could. And I suppose the challenge is then, how much do we as individuals and as Christians want to be tracked and traced? You know, do, do you want to be known where you go or who you are and how they could triangulate your your people groups and your social groupings? And that, that was some of what was coming out. It wasn't just the hotspots, but it was also your social um, networks and then, you know, the where, the how and the who. And, and, and that felt like it was having a, a deep impact on privacy. Uh, a real um, transcendence of something that you felt that was deeply private, that, you know, your diary might know about it, but why should everyone and, and the world know about it but for the purpose of fighting a global pandemic, obviously. And so I think that also brought about this, this change in what was, what was the mission and what was the purpose, and also was there any kind of scope creep or mission creep for when these tech solutions were being deployed. We're now obviously facing in this potentially third, potentially fourth wave, that where we've got around the world responses with vaccine passports of some kind. And this isn't going to stop with a COVID vaccine passport. Indeed, many of the apps are an augmentation of what a COVID track and trace at all was before. And so it's it's the combination of have you been vaccinated or not without a due regard to the ethics of why someone might well be vaccinated with a particular vaccine or not, or might not be able to be vaccinated because of um, enduring health issues. So there's many a question over the, the vaccination or, or as to why you could even enter the precondition of having the app for a vaccine passport. But then it's also about the, the ethics of the passport itself and what this then gives rise to in terms of that inclusion and exclusion bracket. So if you have it, what does that give you? If you don't have it, what does, that, what does that give you? What does that exclude you from? And I think what we're seeing with um, people around the globe right now is that in, in some places, this is preventing people from convening. This is preventing people from having fellowship with other people. This is preventing people from leaving their homes. This is preventing people from um, going to work and earning an income. Um, it all depends on who has the uh, authority to take the information that is being presented in the vaccine passport and apply it to the situation. And this is very different from stateside to a European approach. In, in, in our side of the pond, it, it's tended to be that these apps, the, these passports are being taken at a European-wide level from the European Commission or from a country level, government level, whereas I, I believe both stateside and in Canada, because of the way your healthcare system works, um, it is tended to be by organisation, by organisation, employer, by employer, uh, commercial entity to commercial entity. 
And so you then got to ask of how interoperable are these tools? How, you know, how diverse are they and how are they, how is the information then being translated from entity to entity as one opens one door to go into maybe a government building, but the other door to enter a restaurant and have a meal with the family is closed. So I think in, in terms of where we're seeing it as a society at the moment, I think we need to have great care and understanding for one, those who who won't be able to get access to the vaccine passports because of the technology format and, and uh, device that it sits on. And even when these are printable out, so dare I say, you know, do they have access to a printer? Do they have the access to the to the Internet? I mean, these are really basic things. And I appreciate you're based in a part of the US right now where connectivity isn't strong, you know. So there, there are pockets across UK, Europe, across the world where even the access to the digital to enable these tools to be able to be used. But then the question has to be as well, should we be engaging in that? And to the degree we should be engaging that, is that helping our brother and sister? Is that helping our neighbour because of the information that's making available, that insight, that inference that's making available to help address this pandemic? But on the other hand, what degree is that causing us problems in terms of um, future access, future abilities to have entrance to buildings, to meet as more than six people, meet as more than 20 people, meet as more 30 people, and so on and so forth. What are the parameters? How are these being set? And I'm not sure we have the appropriate safeguards or the appropriate consensus across the globe for that right now. Yeah. And I think that's a really helpful explanation. It really shows the complexity of these situations. I think often when we as humans approach the issues of technology, we want a simple kind of black or white type of answer. Is this good or is this bad? Is this the right use or the wrong use? But I think as you brilliantly show, even in the case of the COVID-19 tracking apps, I mean, they did not really take hold here in the United States as much as they did in other places, partially because of the decentralization, but also some of the privacy concerns that you alluded to. These conversations and these ethical issues are often a lot more complex. And that's where I'm very thankful to have folks like you stepping into these conversations as a believer, talking about this from a Christian worldview, about how we engage a lot of these complex ethical issues surrounding AI and technology. Because as you said, privacy is one of the big issues, and we're seeing that even around the world with uh, the Chinese authoritarian state and the CCP persecuting uh, the Uyghur Muslims and rounding them up in terms of using surveillance technologies like this, not specifically COVID-19, but more so with facial recognition and other types of technologies where these technologies are used and abused in many ways uh, to override someone's personal privacy, to override their humanity, um, and to treat other people as simply objects in this larger kind of scheme of things. And so I really appreciate this conversation because obviously there's so much more that we could dig into on all of these various issues. And hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast soon uh, to talk about uh, do a deep dive on some of these issues. But as we end our time together today, Trish, I wanted just to kind of uh, ask for a couple book recommendations or uh, article recommendations that you would say. So I know you've written a lot in these areas and we'll make sure to link to those. But if listeners wanted to take that next step of just learning a little bit more about some of the complexities in these questions or some of the kind of parameters around these ethical issues, are there maybe one or two books or one or two articles that we could share with them in the show notes uh, that they could take that next step? Absolutely. And I think 
there is so much in the secular space um, and I could recommend many uh, works. Um, one of my favourites is always Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. I think that, that goes without saying for many. But I, um, from, a, from a uniquely Christian perspective, um, there's Masters or Slaves by Jeremy Peckham. It's new to market and, and really there's a bit of a deeper dive into what it means to be made in the image of God and how this impacts our kind of decisions that we make, particularly about our moral autonomy and moral agency that you pointed out earlier in the conversation. And then, although this isn't um, explicitly around AI, but certainly informs the, the debate as to privacy and how much data we're letting out of the bag and really thinking about the data that we put into the, the stratosphere is a, a digital twin, a, a, an echo of ourselves, is too much information by Andrew Greystone. And I suppose it begs the question of when is too much information? And that comes to the point that I made earlier about the, the, the role that having that insight inference about um, an individual over, overreaching um, in, into their privacy sphere, that it almost can know things about them that they don't necessarily know about themselves. So it's, that's really nice entry level um, book for, for anyone who wants to kind of, kind of take the conversation further. No, those are great. And we'll make sure to link to those in the show notes. Uh, the Peckham book, interestingly enough, I'm hoping to have him on the podcast to talk about it sometime soon. So listeners can look forward to that conversation and make sure to pick up both of those books that Trish mentioned, as well as a lot of her work. Uh, we'll make sure to link to a, different, a number of the different initiatives and work that she's done in this really important space. But Trish, I just want to say thank you, one, for your work, uh, for the way that you approach these things with the complexity and the appropriate nuance to a lot of these really pressing issues surrounding AI and technology ethics. But also just appreciate you coming on the podcast and spending a little time with us today to talk about these things. As always, you can connect with Trish and learn more about her work in the show notes as well as those books she recommended. So Trish, just thank you so much for being here on the podcast today. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure being with you. Thank you, Jason. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Trish and learn more about her work in AI ethics, as well as the recommended resources she mentioned in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning, this resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. 